on the prowl again. Up here in the opera house. They say he loves the underworld. But phantoms don't exist. I saw him. He was listening to Mademoiselle Christine. Your voice fills my heart with divine light. Sing for me. Bloody Pit. This is episode 151, and uh, no, that name in the title of this episode is not a repeat of the previous episode. This is the Phantom of the Opera, the version from 1998. And if you have some trepidatious thoughts about that, well, on this episode we have someone whose thoughts on this film are not at all trepidatious. Indeed, they are uh, well, at least they used to be the polar opposite of mine. How are you doing, Troy Howarth? Well, I'm doing well, and I'm glad you were able to scrape the bottom of the barrel to find somebody who actually likes this movie. Uh, well, it's not so much scraping the bottom of the barrel, but it is, uh, well, as you yourself have said, fans of this film are thin on the ground. And uh, I think for a lot of people, I mean, this is, uh, let's be honest, this is a Dario Argento joint. Mm-hmm. Um Let's let's not make any bones about it. Almost everybody, at some point or another, no matter how strong their fandom for Dario Argento, uh, has jumped off the train somewhere, yeah. usually in the 90s. Yeah. Um, now, I have jumped off and on. I've, I've, I have jumped off, I have jumped back on. And this film represents uh, the moment at which I went, Okay, this is a massive misstep. This is because I, unlike a lot of other people, uh, did enjoy his previous two movies, which were a bit problematic to a large subset of the fans of Dario Argento's films. Uh, let's let's talk briefly. I mean, I guess you could even back up a little bit to uh, his segment for Two Evil Eyes, sure. uh, where I think that uh, a lot of people were not the biggest fans of that either. Uh, which I think is a shame because I really enjoy the hell out of that. I think both halves of that film are very strong. He and Romero did, I think, fantastic work there. But I know that uh, you know, as uh, th- there are people who you know were like, eh, I don't know about this one. Maybe not. Maybe not. And then even more dropped off with uh, 1993's Trauma. But I I never did, and it's it's strange. What what are your feelings on Trauma? I like trauma. As a matter of fact, I'll back up to uh, Two Evil Eyes as well and, and say uh, I think um, his half of the film is one of the best things he's ever done. Ah, okay. Uh, I think it's superb. I, I think the Romero part is, is a little sluggish by comparison. It kind of has a slight TV movie feel to it, which is um, 
it's it's tricky when you watch a film like that and you're starting off with a movie that that is maybe a little underwhelming and then you segue into something else that is that stylish. Uh, maybe it was a little jarring for people, but I I thought the Black Cat was superb. Oh, I agree. Um, and Trauma, I mean, you know, I remember. I became a fan of Argento really hardcore in the mid-90s, right around the time Stendhal Syndrome was coming out was when I really kind of, I was aware of him before then. Um, I had seen a couple of things, but I wasn't really a fan at that time. Um, so I was aware uh, that Trauma had come out that was covered in depth, very much in depth, through, uh, like in Fangoria. Uh, there was a lot of excitement over it. It was kind of a starry cast for an Argento movie in a way. Yeah. You know, some of the people that are in it are, you know, not we're not talking, you know, huge stars, but well-known American actors. Um, you know, an Oscar nominee in there and, uh, you know, some, some, some good people involved. And I knew that it was not well-received. It went over really badly. So when I, you know, finally got into my Dario Argento phase and started watching all of his movies, I remember renting it out and... Um, I, I didn't understand why people didn't like it right from the get-go. I was really perplexed. I mean, fortunately these days, the, the, the days of panning and scanning is a thing of the past uh, pretty yeah. much. Um, it's something that is kind of a foreign concept now. But that was one of the few Argento films that was shot in actual authentic anamorphic widescreen, and that one really suffered on tape um, being panned and scanned. But even in that form, I thought this is very stylish. Um, this is recognizably his work. It, it has all the usual tropes that you would expect, and uh, I just didn't get it. I didn't understand why people don't like it. And every time I look at it, I'm always sort of just kind of think the same thing. People say, oh, it's so mainstream. It's so bland. It's so well, ordinary. Yeah, I'm I've like, never this felt is it not was bland. bland. I've never felt it was no. bland. I, I, I felt that it had a glossier look to it than people may have expected and it felt a little bit i mean i mean he saw he shot he, it was shot with sync sound it was shot mm-hmm. uh it was shot in america as was uh, the black cat segment of two eyes and so what you have mm-hmm. is a different look i'll grant you that uh but it doesn't it feels very much of a piece with his previous works uh sure. and, and right now with trauma is there a decent version of that out there available on blu-ray i'm not even aware if there is they finally put out a nice version um, last year or the year before through Vinegar Syndrome, uh, a Blu-ray. Okay, okay, um, right. That actually has the uh, the longer cut. They're, the Italian version had a few scenes in it that weren't included in the American one. Um, they're not essential. They don't really, you know, if you think the plot doesn't make sense, it's not going to clarify it for you. <laughs> but uh, it's a Dario Argento movie. I mean, you know, you, well, you sometimes I just have to take leaps of faith. I came to trauma in, the, in one of the weirdest ways, in a way in which that I think it could still happen these days, but not not completely in the way it happened to me. I caught it as I, ca- I caught the work print of it as a bootleg. Yeah. And therefore, my first view of it was knowing that it was a work print. Uh, I was seeing it widescreen, so that was not an impediment. But at the same time, that when you're watching something that you know is uh, an, an unfinished version of a film, I think that you're a little kinder to it because you know, well, this is not the full polish, and I'm seeing yeah. things here that won't be in the finished product. So I really liked the version of it that I saw as a work print. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, so that that enthusiasm, that that kindness toward that movie has not never really gone away because even shortened versions of it still have the uh, the the effective pieces still have the, the 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 I guess you could say the bones of what I enjoyed on my first viewing so trauma to me 
regardless of what you and I may think, that's where people started to get a little iffy and people started to jump off the train and it's the Fairweather yep. Friends syndrome happening big time. And then yep. when you get to 96's Stendhal syndrome is when a lot of people just threw up their hands and I have never understood that because I think I think the Stendhal syndrome is an extraordinarily strong film. As a matter of fact, I would have mm-hmm. argued at the time, if we were conversing about this in a vacuum back in the 90s, that if you felt a little like trauma was a step in the wrong direction or a slight misstep or where it felt as if he didn't have full control of what he was attempting to accomplish, I would have just argued, yeah, but Stendhal, man, this is a, this is clearly the same guy that made, you know, Tenebrae and Phenomena. Look at this. This is amazing. And yet, not a lot of people. There, there are too many people who just really, really did not like the film. Yeah, it's a dark film. It's an angry film. It came out of a dark and angry place. He had been through some some difficult times in the '90s. Uh, his stepdaughter had died uh, in in an accident. Um, his uh, his business was in bad shape. Um, you know, he'd gone over to America and tried to sort of break into the American. Uh, way of making films and that, that was not a good decision but you know it, it didn't work out for him uh, his movies weren't making money anymore they weren't getting great distribution um, he actually had gone through a bankruptcy situation as well because there was some shady shadiness uh, behind the scenes not involving him but you know some people in his uh, kind of business uh, empire and um, I, I think a lot of that anger came out in the Stendhal syndrome which is a very dark movie um, the, the darkest, most disturbing film that he's ever made, I think. And it kind of feels in a way like it, it starts where a lot of Argento films end. Because a lot of the earlier films, you know, they, they're, they're, they're celebrated for their kind of Baroque presentation of violence. And, you know, violence is kind yeah. of performance art and so forth. But this is a movie that really deals with the psychological impact, the trauma, you know, of, uh, of violence and the cyclical nature of it and so forth. It's, it's a bleak film. It's pretty much without humor. Um, and it's done in a slightly more realistic key than usual. Uh, Giuseppe Rotono was a cinematographer on it. It's a great cinematographer. He worked with Fellini. And it's a beautiful-looking film. But it suffered in America for a long time because after a deal with Miramax fell through um, – which, you know, given what happened with Harvey Weinstein and, and uh, later allegations involving him and Ozzy Argento kind of makes you wonder what, what happened. Yeah. Um, it, it got handed over to Troma, and I don't know what Argento was thinking when he made that deal, but it, it was not a film that was treated well on video for a long time. Um, so it didn't look all that great uh, when it was first released over here. But, uh, you know, I, I liked it right from the get-go. I was kind of surprised by it because it's not a fun movie in the way that his earlier films had been. But I think once I settled on the idea that, okay, it's uh, it's not quite what I thought it was going to be, but it's great for what it is. And, yeah, I would I would say, too, I think it's definitely in, in, in my top five of his films. Well, I've got to say that with Stendhal, I don't know that I'd put it in the top five, but uh, – I, I really do like it, and I think once again, it's it's a it's a question of uh, I did not catch it via the uh, the domestic bl- uh, DVD. I once again caught it via <laughs> via bootleg from mm-hmm. a, an, a, an Italian source with English subtitles, and therefore my my opinion of it may not may, may not have been tainted by a crappy presentation as were as as was the case with a lot of American viewers. Uh, that yeah. that may be part of that. So. Yeah, that's quite possible. I mean, that that one at least seems to have kind of uh, risen in stock down through the years. Um, more people seem to like it now. Um, 
I've had a couple of people tell me it's their favorite of his films, which hmm. um, you know is always kind of kind of surprising. But I mean, yeah, why not? I, I think it's a fine piece of work. Um, but back in the in the late '90s, it was not a movie that was particularly well liked. I mean, Maitland McDonough, who wrote a book about Argento, didn't like it. Alan Jones, who um, you know is is very well known for covering Argento's films and you know behind the scenes, uh, he didn't care for it. Um, a lot of people really kind of uh, knocked it, but. Uh, uh, yeah, again, I think I think it's just it's so unusual in his body of work in so many respects. It's it's so distinctive um, because it was his return to Italy, his return to making films without having to worry about uh, unsympathetic collaborators, you know, telling him what he could or could not do. And, you know, he, he just decided to make this very angry, very dark, very violent film violent in a more realistic way as opposed to the more stylized way of his earlier films which i think was maybe a little tough for some people to take yeah that may be part of it i have to admit but uh, regardless uh when we we get two years later to the film we're going to talk about primarily this evening which is his version of the phantom of the opera now my understanding is the genesis for this and uh, stop me if i'm wrong is that there had been some kind of bizarre poll in yes. Italy uh, mm-hmm. asking uh, fans or filmgoers uh, what subject matter they would like to see Dario Argento tackle mm-hmm. in, in, his, in his career, and this, this rose to the top of that, uh, that particular poll, and so yeah. the decision was made. Um, I, that that that's a rarity for a filmmaker to have the, to like quiz the public. I mean, how did this come about? Well, Silvio Berlusconi, the, the now notorious Silvio Berlusconi, um, had been involved with uh, multiple companies at a company called Mediaset, um, and they were also involved with the Medusa distribution company, which had, had handled the uh, Italian distribution of Stendhal syndrome. And um, Argento, especially at that time, was no ordinary filmmaker in Italy. He was a bona fide celebrity. He was one of the relatively few directors who was able to cultivate a public image that uh, made him as big as any movie star. I mean, it's kind of comparable to Hitchcock, what what happened with Hitchcock, especially after Hitchcock went on to American TV screens, uh, thanks to the Alfred Hitchcock Presents and Alfred Hitchcock Hour Shows, um, you know, where he created and sort of cultivated this image where he was really communicating with the public. I mean, Hitchcock did that in trailers, too. Uh, he would do special trailers. We've all seen like the, the wonderful trailer he did for Psycho, where he's taking people on a tour of the uh, of the Bates house and the Bates Motel and all that. So I, I, I'm where, a big fan of his uh, his trailer for the birds. Yeah. Oh yeah, the birds is another one. I mean, he did, did this all the time, and it's one of those things where most people don't. Well, a most people don't really know what a director does anyway, but most people don't really know. If you ask the average person on the street, you know, what does Martin Scorsese look like? They probably don't know. Um, you know, film buffs obviously know this sort of thing. Film buffs follow directors, but you know, in terms of the general public, that's not necessarily the case. But Argento was a bona fide celebrity, so the fact that he'd returned to Italy with the Stendhal syndrome, which did well in Italy, it wasn't as big as they were hoping, but it did okay, especially also because it it um, it didn't cost a ton of money, um, and uh, so it it was uh, it was much more successful certainly than Two Evil Eyes or, or Trauma had been. So that was a step in the right direction, and I think because of Argento's celebrity and his status and everything. Berlusconi figured, well, let's see, you know, let's let's see what the public would like to see him do, 
And Phantom, I think, was also um, the, the big popular topic at that time because Andrew Lloyd Webber's uh, musical had come out. Um, <laughs> a very different yeah. proposition from what, uh, from what Argento was going to do regardless. But I don't think anybody quite anticipated what he was going to do with this, what an eccentric film he was going to make out of it. No, but they should have, uh, if they knew the, the filmmaker they were talking about, they should have expected some aspects of what they got. My God. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like um, Argento was scared of the darkness of the Stendhal syndrome and wanted to kind of dial that back, and so he goes for camp. Um, and camp is a word that's misused by a lot of people. It sometimes is a put-down. It's, it's not a put-down. It's not a pejorative term at all. It's a very knowing sense of humor. Um, it, it's something where you're kind of winking at the audience. I mean, Vincent Price was camp, okay? That's not a put-down. It's just that's the way that he communicated with his audience. He tended to do things with a little bit of extra flair and a little bit of a twinkle. Um, and it's a deliberate kind of a process. Um, and I think that that's exactly what Argento elected to do with this film, which was the first time he'd really made a film that you could qualify that way. Well, um, it's but also, I think, I, think, I think we'd have to say it's also his first period film. I mean, that's... That's a second. Well, well, well okay. Um, I'm sorry. What did I miss? There was a uh, rather obscure film from the '70s he made called *The Cinque Giornate*. Ah, uh, yes, yes. Five I'm, days. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. That that was um, that was his first foray into a kind of a costume film. But this was his kind of this was his first, I guess you could call, it, gothic horror film. And I have to admit that one of the problems that even people who you know tried really hard to hang on to this film. One of the problems that they have is not just the uh, the uh, well. Let's, let's let's put it bluntly. Uh, he seems to be trying to do four or five things all at the same mm-hmm. time. He's he seems to be using the Phantom of the Opera to attempt a couple of different things, and they sometimes get in the way of each other. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I I could liken it to the 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 repeated joke in the 43 version of Phantom of the Opera, it's sometimes as if there's two or three different things trying to get through the door for your attention all at the same time. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, it, and they, they block each other up. It's like, are we, you know, are we going for a, a romantic melodrama? Are we going for, you know, outright gory horror? Are right. we going for some kind of bizarre supernatural tale with, you know, vague, yeah. vaguely defined aspects that, that really, well, I'll, Basically, there there are so many things that are kind of ran- are are we are we looking at something that is supposed to be taking as at least at least partially as a satire of the mm-hmm. the uh, the society that it's that it's attempting to kind of present to you. But all yeah. of these things are true. But the thing is that they're they're some of them are presented with real with real verve. I mean, there's a lot of energy behind the horror elements of it, which you know, big shock. It's Dario Argento. But mm-hmm. the other elements of it seem as if he did not have a, a, a firm grasp on how to present them in a way to sell them as effectively as he sells the horror aspects of it. Some mm-hmm. of them he gets away with, in my opinion. And in my more recent viewing, just this week, uh, for the first time in probably two decades, uh, I will ha- I would have to say that that point that seems to me to be one of the one of the major stumbling blocks of the picture is that it repeatedly gets in its own way because it's not changing its style to present a different tone. It's presenting the same kind of... It's presenting the material in, in, in much the same way that it would, was presenting the 
the, the tonally different stuff that it was just presenting to you or is about to present to you in another sequence. Uh, and I, I, I will give you that one of the one of the problems that I see that you know you kind of have to either point to the script or you have to point to the director, which is that there is not an effective communication. I mean, you almost have to backfill the information that there there are multiple supernatural possibilities going on here because otherwise several times in the movie shit just doesn't make sense <laughs> and what well, yeah i i would agree with that um it does have its problems there's no question and it's 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 interesting you should mention the 43 version which of course um you've only just talked about yeah. um but that was a big influence on dario as a kid he saw it when he was nine years old it was re-released in italy apparently and he talked in his autobiography about going to see it with his brother and sister and, and how obsessed he was with it. And they would act out scenes from it. Um, and it was a, it was one of those movies that just made such a vivid impression on him since childhood that it, it's still to this day. Um, there are elements of that story and of that particular version that kind of filter in and out through his work. It's, it's really one of the, the movies that really most impressed him. Um, which is kind of funny because it's a very lightweight uh, kind of a horror film. It's not. It's by no means a full-blooded horror film. It's, yeah, it's yeah. the it's the film people tend to say there's not enough phantom and there's too much opera. Um, whereas what's interesting about Argento's film is there's very little opera. <laughs> so he he doesn't <laughs> really go in for too much of that. Actually, it's it's like you know whether consciously or subconsciously he's thinking okay maybe we don't need all these singing scenes. Um, but you know it's definitely an opportunity for him to. Put his stamp on the material which arguably in a way he didn't even need to do because he'd already done opera um which is kind of his giallo take on phantom of the opera in many respects and uh, undoubtedly a better film uh and a more coherent film but um yeah i mean what i like about this film there are multiple things i like about it. one of them is that the money is absolutely on the screen um it, yeah it's, that's it's true a, it's a gorgeous looking production and uh you know Budgets would shrink after this, partly because this movie did so badly. Um, but also, I like the quirkiness of it. I like the uh, what seems to me very deliberate sort of tongue-in-cheek humor of it, which a lot of people didn't seem to understand. And a lot of people at the time, uh, it seems to me that they were attacking the movie for being unintentionally funny. And I was sitting there thinking the whole time, but it's clearly meant to be funny. I don't understand why people were confused by that aspect of it. Maybe it's because it wasn't advertised, uh, you know, out and out as a sort of uh, satirical. I, I think I can, I think I can give you a hint. Um, I think that the mistake is made in the opening sequence, in the opening few minutes of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, it is the, the the it is impossible to take the opening sequence of the film literally, oh, and no. and and the thing is, it's the opening sequence of the film, so. Trying to, uh, tr- uh, to for for the for the uninitiated, God, uh, please, I hope you watch this movie before you listen to our discussion because I guarantee you we're going to talk about things that are would, would definitely be considered spoilers. But within the first four minutes of this film, what we're watching under the credits is essentially uh, the Ten Command. I'm sorry, uh, Moses. Um, no, no, I'm sorry, uh, a baby floating down uh, <laughs> down through the sewers of Paris, or Batman uh, Returns. Uh, well, I was, I was about to say, yeah, it's, it's like only six years previous had we watched Oswald Cobblepot uh, <laughs> turn into a freaking mutant in go. Daniel Waters' screenplay for Batman Returns. 
And the problem is not that that's how we're going to introduce this character. The problem is, if you're going to do this, you've really got to find a way to sell it. And unfortunately, they th th there's a crippling of the believability of what we're watching there when we watch a rat tug a baby <laughs> out of the water and up onto the... No. I mean, here's the thing. I, I, I understand what he's going for. If he's got to have his Moses moment, okay. We'll have a Moses moment, but here's what you have to do. You have to have the little basket with the baby wash up on the shore there, and then the rats gather around it. You do not start your film with something that is going to make people immediately start laughing and rolling their eyes. And that <laughs> is the, that's what happens in the first four minutes of this film. Yeah, it's, I mean, I can it's understand that. patently unbelievable. So it in other is. words, you ease your you ease your audience. This is the beginning of your film. <laughs> ease your audience into this scenario by presenting this as believably as possible. See, but what's so interesting that the, is so that is, the more ridiculous aspects that you're going to layer onto this later on mm -hmm. then are being layered on. They're not they're not starting over because you've already lost the audience. What's interesting to me in that is that um, you know we're coming at this from different perspectives. This this is a movie that um, up until your most recent viewing, you you had no affection for at all. Me personally, I, I had no problem with it. I accepted it on the level of a kind of grotesque, tongue-in-cheek fantasy fable fairy tale type of a thing. Um, I, I could accept that as just sheer, okay, this is what this movie's going to be. All right, buckle in and just, we're going to have to go with it. You fight it or or you accept it and go along with it. I didn't fight it. Um, I accept, now I'm not going to say that everything about the film works for me, but I never had a problem with that. I can see what you mean objectively. I, you know, you're probably correct. Um, you know, if you want to sort of ease people into something like this, Maybe that would have been a good choice, and maybe that would have flown better. But I think there's so much in this movie that is so deliberately overheated and so deliberately over the top that you either I, – I hate to say you get it or you don't because that sounds condescending. It's just you either pick up on the fact that it's meant to be humorous or you just assume, well, this is just bad filmmaking and this is just laughable. And uh, I, I didn't – I didn't make that assumption that it was just laughable. It just seemed to me, okay, this is going to be a really weird movie. <laughs> so I guess I'm just going to have to go with it and see where it goes to. I mean, there's a lot in this film that is really, really strange. <laughs> yeah, yes. And, that, and, and that's the thing is the uh, a, a lot of the strange things in it I, I have no trouble with. But the problem is, I mean, even the things that I... The problems that I have are there are things in it that, once again, you have to figure out after the fact mm -hmm. because he's not finding a way to communicate it effectively. Uh, one of my, one of my uh, bigger problems with the film that have not gone that th this problem has not gone away. In this most recent viewing is, okay, so there is some you know I don't first of all I don't need an explanation for why this baby that was raised by rats in the sewers of Paris is telepathic. <laughs> I, I don't need that. That's not what I'm looking for. That's not my problem. <clears throat> no. That's what you're establishing. Okay, let's roll with it. The problem I have is that Argento is not doing anything in the film visually to allow you to understand that there are moments when the only thing that makes sense, and you have to figure it out later after the scene is already over, is that 
his he is telepath telepathically communicating or telepathically doing something to cause something that we're seeing on on screen. Yeah. And my favorite example of this is the the scene where uh, he uh, where the the Phantom and uh, Aja Argento's character first meet, and she is panting like she just went into heat. Mm-hmm. It it is madness and it comes off once again it's like I have a lot of respect for Aja Argento I think she's a fantastic performer and I've seen her pull off some things that are I mean just I would consider to be extraordinarily difficult as an actor Sure. And she's very good in this film for the most part, but the the her 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 director slash her father undermines her in this scene because only after the fact can we even. I mean, it was like fully thirty minutes later watching this movie when I realized, wait a minute, wait a minute. The only way that scene makes any sense because she's not a lunatic, you know, who's she's not a sex maniac. We're not being presented <laughs> with someone who you know spots a, spots a man and immediately starts grabbing at his groin. Oh except in that scene. So there has to be something else going on there. But of yes, course there whispering are... whispering sweet nothings in her ear telepathically. Right, but the thing is, a director should be showing us this. Yeah. It, there should have been, and, I, and I'm sorry, he had an actor that could have done this. He needed some, he needed some close-ups on Julian Sands' eyes. Yeah. He, needed, he needed something so that we're getting the impression that this man is having some kind of effect on her that is of a supernatural nature. And it's not. And therefore, every time I watch that scene, I'm just sitting there going, oh, he, this could have been saved so easily. Yeah. All he needed was shots of Julian Sands' eyes, and, that, and everything else would play perfectly good. It, 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 it would work well, but it yeah. does not work well. And it's, and it's one of those moments where it's like, why is he doing this to his actor? Why, it, 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 he's submarining her. Yeah, I do wonder, and not to make excuses for him, because that's not, you know, it's easy to fall into that if you're a fan of somebody, just to sort of defend them all the time, and that that's not productive, and that's not, you know, not realistic. Everybody, well, almost everybody drops the ball on, you know, on occasion. Um, but I do wonder if there were elements of this film that were lost on the cutting room floor, because the original cut... <laughs> It, to people who don't like this film, they will they will drop to their knees and say thank God. But it did run, I think, in the area of about two and a half hours. Um, Holy crap! It was cut down pretty substantially because uh, Medusa, you know, uh, the the the, uh, the the company that was really sort of uh, putting the movie out and so forth, said that you you can't have a movie this long. Uh, back in the day, he probably could have. Back in the 70s and 80s, he probably could have. But by this time, it's not going to happen. So a lot of material gets cut. And I am i don't know for a fact. I've not read the original script, um, even assuming if there's an English language translation floating around out there. But I, yeah. I kind of wonder if some of these supernatural elements may have been things that got kind of whittled away as they were cutting it down. It, it's a possibility. I, it, that sounds like a possibility. Uh, I cannot imagine this film being, you know, forty-five minutes longer. That's no. that's madness itself. Uh, but although I am reminded, uh, earlier this week I went to see the uh, I went to see the uh, second version of Firestarter. Oh and, yeah. Uh, I've never been a big fan of the original version. I think it's no. a massive waste of a lot of really excellent actors. And uh, this film, th- th- this Firestarter is, uh, it's 94 minutes long, and I, f- I said it, fe- it felt simultaneously too long and too short. 
and <laughs> and it, that the the idea there would be as as it relates to this particular movie is like I have seen movies that you know where you get a director's cut and it's technically longer and yet feels shorter. Yes, because it flows the way it was originally intended to flow, and therefore you're not even noticing the passage of time. You're just caught up. You want to know one of the best director's cuts that is massively longer, but it is so, so much better? Kingdom of Heaven. Oh, I agree. And the thing is... Kingdom of Heaven, in its short version, I saw in a theater, felt like it was three years long. But (laughs) when you see the uncut version, as long as it is... It's totally, you're with it the whole way. In a funny way, too, also, um, not that it's a great film, but Jess Franco's Justine um, is undoubtedly too long in its longest version. It's over two hours long. But the the short version that was put out over here on video called Deadly Sanctuary feels twice as long. So it's funny how that can happen. It's amazing when that happens, but it is, this was a unique experience with this, this new, this new fire starter where I honestly sitting in the theater thinking to myself, my God, this is long as hell. And then five minutes later, <laughs> think, and I went in knowing how long I knew, I knew what the runtime was. And, and, and I, and, and I realized, and as I said that to myself going, this thing's only 90 minutes long and mm-hmm. it feels like it's two hours and I'm in, yeah. and I'm slogging my way through hour two right now. Yeah. And, and, and something else, I did not expect to walk out of the theater going, well, you know, at least it was good. At least Zach Efron, Zach Efron gave a good performance. <laughs> but it's true. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I haven't seen it yet, but I have heard the Carpenter score, which of course is good, as, yeah, as I would yeah. expect. I wish that Carpenter could have made his film uh, back when he was supposed to make it, uh, but unfortunately, as we know. Uh, that didn't happen, and they ended up getting Mark Lester to do a much stripped-down version with a different script, and that. Well, this, this is a, this is a conversation for another time, but I honestly yes. do feel that uh, the novel itself is probably a mistake to attempt to adapt. Uh, probably, it's 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 one of it's one of King's weaker novels. I read it. I mean, I was reading King at the time when that one came out, and that was the first one that I read as they were coming out when I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. Where I felt, wow, you know, this one, uh, this was kind of all over the damn place, yeah. and that was really well, kind of the problem with the uh, the 1984 version of the movie, which, which is they tried to keep way too much, and yeah. in this one they strip it down a good bit, but the pieces they keep don't work well together. It's it's a mess. Right. But nevertheless, back to the subject. Well, you know, it's a good book. Uh, there are lots of good books, but what? <laughs> Phantom of the Opera. Huh? Phantom of the Opera. Uh, Yes, indeed. <laughs> I agree with you. The Genesis point for a, for a million different film versions. I, I've, I've heard this one called, I've heard the Argento version called like the seventh feature film version. And I've not done a full count. That might be right. I'm not positive. But. Well, I don't know. It's quite possible. I mean, there was a, there was a the first version is lost. It was a, a silent one right. from back in 1916. Uh, then all the familiar versions. I mean. Uh, do we do we count the twenty nine version? Considering it was just a sound version, you know, it's it's the same film as the twenty. That's what I, I that's mean, what I've always thought is like. So you really kind yeah. of have like the touchstone, which is the twenty five film with with Lon Chaney, and then yeah. and then the forty three version, and then sixty two with, with Herbert Long. Yeah. Maximilian Schell did a terrific TV version in nineteen eighty three, which um, I have to admit I have not seen. So watch it, find it. It's tough to see, unfortunately, but I, it was the first version I ever saw, 
Oh my God, is Shell great in that? I mean, he does not play a sympathetic phantom <laughs> in it. Uh, he's terrific in Stan Winston makeup too. If you can find a copy of it anywhere, even if it's on YouTube or something, watch it. I really recommend it. Okay. Uh, there's also the Robert England version from 1989. Uh, there's a Charles Dance version, also with Burt Lancaster playing the Phantom's dad uh, from 1990. So whatever count that brings us to, but there are all these other artificial ones too. Like, oh, there, uh, yeah, there are lots of really interesting. I mean, there's yeah, you know, Phantom of the Paradise, which I think is sure. probably the best variation done as a feature film. I mean, it's it's I it's agree. it's successful all on its own. Yeah. And then uh, I mean, what is it? Uh, Phantom of the Mall. Yeah, Phantom of the Mall, and there's some Japanese films, uh, and and various other you know versions as well. You know yeah. where they they just pretty. I mean the the 1971 version of Murders in the Rue Morgue kind of is a little bit of a Phantom of the Opera with Herbert Lom again. Yeah, I'm about, I'm about to sit film. down and rewatch that because I haven't seen it in so long. It's a good film. Well, it's, it's good. My it's, memories it, are that I enjoyed it, but that uh, there was this weird period. Where it seemed like Jason Robards was sleepwalking uh-huh. through a lot of movies. I mean, you like, see, a intentionally. Lot people, a lot of people say that about him in that film, but I disagree. I can see what they mean when it comes to Julius Caesar. Well, yeah, where, he's, uh, he, where he seems somnambulant in that film. He's terrible in it. He tried to get out of it. He, he knew it was a mistake, and he tried to get out of it. He, he was not a Shakespearean actor. Um but they held him to it, made him do it. But no, I actually think he's very good in, in Murders in the Room Morgue. I know a lot of people say, oh, it should have been Vincent Price. But I, I mean, look, I love Vincent Price, but I've seen Vincent Price in a thousand of these things. It's kind of nice to see Jason Robards. Well, it's like the, it's like the joy of seeing Ray Milland in Premature Burial. It's like, man, well, he's, he's great. In that film. Yeah. He's terrific. And he's far more, no offense to Vincent Price, he's far more credible as a romantic leading man than, than Price would have been, I think. Uh, in that film as well, and then when he goes crazy at the end, oh, he's, he's terrific. But I'll back back to our subject at hand here. So whether or not this is the seventh feature version of this, to my mind, it is probably like the umpteenth version of this that is in the public consciousness, depending on how old you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the when I when I when I grew up when I was growing up, I saw the twenty five version uh, on uh, I think on. A, like a cheap early VHS tape at some time mm-hmm. or not. And, and you know it, it becomes this thing where you you're, you're familiar with the story to a certain degree but there are all these different elements that are always a part of the story and then you come to a version like this and if you just watch the 25 version or the 43 version there's a part of you that's going to go what in the holy living fuck is with this <laughs> rat catcher character Oh, yeah. And what that means well, is that you have not seen the 1962 version from Hammer. Exactly. Yeah, Patrick Troughton. Um, Patrick Troughton played the rat catcher. <sighs> My favorite Doctor Who. Film. Yeah, well, I mean, I've never, never really been a Doctor Who fan, i got to admit, but I love Patrick Troughton. And I love the Hammer Phantom. Actually, it's my favorite version. I know that's not a popular sentiment, but it's, it's my favorite one. I can understand that. Well, while I would I, while I would say I think the twenty five version is probably the best cinematic version of the story. Mm-hmm. If you had to like, if you like, put you know all of them into into a list in front of me and said, well, which one do you want to watch right now? I'll probably end up reaching for the sixty two version. My only problem with the sixty two version, not to get too far afield, but the only the only problem I have with the sixty two version is the last act is very rushed and uh, un- unsatisfying from my point of a view. A rushed but third that, act from Hammer? You sh- I you're know, kidding gotta me. Burn down, gotta burn down the house or wander out into the moors and get into the quicksand. Yeah, no but, uh, <laughs> but no, other than that, it's a really beautiful film and Herbert Lom's terrific in it. Um, 
I mean, the whole cast is really good in that one. Uh, Michael Goff is great in that, too. So, yeah, I, that's the one I like the best. I don't think, I don't know. I, I, I say this, but I know somebody's going to say, I am. I don't think anybody picks Argeno's as their favorite version of Phantom, but I think most people would probably pick it as the weirdest one. <laughs> Uh, possibly possibly god only knows what'll happen the next time somebody adapts it but uh yeah uh the the, th- the thing is um the elements that argento decided to include in this version i would love to know i would i, I, w- I want to hear i want to be a fly on the wall for the meeting back in you know 95 or night or 96 or 97 whenever they were when they were first putting this idea together when somebody went I want to know whose idea it was to keep the Ratcatcher character and then one-up the 62 film by, once again, including something in this Argento film Mm. that cannot be taken seriously no matter what you do. And that's the... The (laughs) the Ratmobile. Yeah, the the Rat vacuum cleaner killer machine <laughs> it's like what in the hell were they th- what were they thinking that was the Genot and caro influence i think you know things like uh, city of lost children and uh yeah but they make it work i mean yeah for God's uh, well sake. it's a you know one of the things one of the things we haven't touched on in this film yet and i think is important is the fact that uh, the co-writer of this film is somebody very interesting gerard brock of course who is uh a longtime collaborator of Roman Polanski, and when if you watch enough Polanski films, as I do, I know I, I, I'm a terrible person, but I like Polanski movies. Um, well, don't feel so bad. I'm a fan of his films as well, regardless. I, I absolutely am a huge fan. I think man's a genius as a filmmaker. There's a lot of dark humor in his films. There's a lot of absurdist humor that comes through, it, certainly in certain films, that, that makes his comedies tough for some people to digest um i don't have this problem but i know a lot of people do but right not long before this in 92 he and brock had written a film called bitter moon yeah. which i think is one of the great films of the 1990s that is is trashed <laughs> people hate it <laughs> they hate it they don't understand it and i hate again i hate saying that because it sounds terribly condescending but i don't mean it to it's just the movie is a comedy. It's a black comedy. And all that sort of overheated voiceover narration, the purple prose and everything is meant to denote that this guy, played by Peter Coyote, is a terrible writer. That's oh, the joke. Yeah, yeah, well, and yeah. a lot of people didn't seem to get that in the same way that Phantom, when it came out, a lot of people just seemed to think, oh, this thing is unintentionally funny. Argento's completely lost it. This thing is just a laugh riot. It's meant to be. <laughs> but I think... And again, there are things that don't work, but it is that that kind of grotesque humor, um, which you know is very, very much a part of the uh, of the whole thing with the rat catcher and his dwarf sidekick and the rat. I always call it the Ratmobile, um, and all that stuff. It's incredibly uh, bizarre. It could be argued it's gratuitous, but I'm I'm glad it's there, even though I recognize it doesn't entirely work. Well, that's see. That's the problem. Is 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 one of the hardest things in the world to recommend to another person is comedy. Okay, yes. because no two people's sense of humor are are exactly alike. I mean, there can be great similarities, but individual senses of humor are like fingerprints. It's mm-hmm. a little crazy, but it's true. And the problem you run into is that 
you are always very close to having someone laughing at you rather than with you. Right. And the, the way you make sure that people are laughing with you is you invite them into the joke. You find a way. You can watch a stand-up comic do this all the time because he's including his audience in on what he's talking about. The, it's, it's a conversation, even though there's really only one person talking. You're only reacting. And so the idea is that it's us. We're, we're doing this. And a filmmaker has to do something very, very similar when you're making a comedy. We're in this together. We're creating this funny thing. As a, it's, a, it's a chemistry, a magic act going on between the two of us. And the thing is, you can, if you get the audience on your side, take them to places you never believe that they would go. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my favorite examples of that is one that I think that uh, people think of these days as kind of a mainstream film is something like Raising Arizona, sure. which is very, very, very crazy. Yeah. Okay? But they knew that they had to invite the audience in so that they're part of it as well. So that when they get to the batshit crazier stuff as the, as the story progresses, you're already on the film's side. Mm-hmm. You have sympathy for what's going on. You have sympathy for the characters. And so it doesn't have to be sympathy for the characters, depending on whatever story you're telling, but you have to find a way to invite the audience in so that they're laughing with instead of at. And the thing is, anything that you do that breaks that, and this movie's tonal changes really, really... <laughs> they're, 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 they're part and parcel of the problem with breaking that, that, that chemistry between an audience and the film. Mm-hmm. And in, in the case of... Let, let's, let's put it this way. If you, if you eliminated the batshit insanity and God knows probable expense of that <laughs> insane machine and that whole ridiculous sequence and found a way to get the rat. If you've got to have the rat catcher character there at the end of the film for the climax, that's okay. That's fine. Find a different way to do it. At least you haven't had the entire audience or at least a huge percentage of it sit there going, what is he fucking doing to me? <laughs> I mean, even if I'm trying to be on your side, there's no way and he compounds the error. Once again, folks, we're going to spoil things here. He compounds the error with that batshit piece of machinery by, when it comes apart, throwing really shitty CGI at us. Well, yeah, the CGI is... Um, uh, CGI, in terms of special effects, the Italians have always been way ahead of the game when it comes to... Uh, matte paintings, and it comes to makeup effects, prosthetic works, things like that. Um, the Stendhal Syndrome was the first, I believe, the first Italian film to utilize CGI. And it's not very good CGI, but it works in the context that you're dealing with a kind of surrealist concept. Um, the Correct. idea of Correct. the girl going into the paintings and so forth, or the you know the pills going down into the stomach, which was something he'd wanted to do as far back as uh, phenomena, uh, but he wasn't able to because the technology wasn't there. Um, it works there. There are some lamentable um, bits of CGI in this film, and certainly in, in other Argento productions uh, from around this time too. None worse than the wax mask, which is another Gaston LaRue thing that uh, Argento had a hand in around this same time. He produced it originally for Lucio Fulci. Yeah, I'm friendlier toward that film 
than than this. Uh, but, I'm not. Yeah, I understand. I'm not. Uh, <laughs> I have. I mean, don't get me wrong. Uh, by the time you get to the by the time you get to the third act, yeah. I'm off the tra- I'm off the train. But uh, I, I enjoy the, the the way it maintains its tone for the first you know hour and ten minutes. So. I, I I much prefer Phantom personally, although I do like the look of uh, Wax Mask, thanks to, thanks to Sergio Savati, the cinematographer. It's a very lush-looking movie. Yeah. It's very beautiful. It has some horrific CGI right from the very beginning. Like, the sky is, is a CGI thing. Oh, I agree. And that's really bad. Well, the sky, let, let's talk about, well, yeah. we, we could talk about the sky I, in this film as well. Holy crap. When we get to the scene on the roof, which is a scene that I think should have been omitted. Um, I yeah. think it should have been removed from the final cut. I understand why it's there. I understand the thinking. I understand the process behind it. Um, obviously, he is quite lovelorn, and he's conflicted, and he's up there fantasizing about, uh, you know, Christine and, and all this other stuff. Um, but the um, the scene in question is really, really, really bad, and I think that is probably the scene. If I were going to remove anything from this movie to make it better. I think that would be the big scene I would take out. Well, think about what's terrible is that when I when I think about what they were obviously going for, it's like okay, so the Phantom, who has you know lived his entire life underground, mm-hmm. he's he's up on the roof of the opera house at night, looking at the stars, and it's like okay, if you were doing this properly, we would we would know that he's up there only at night because. Otherwise, it's just too bright, and he couldn't be up there. In other words, this is the only way he can, exper- sure. can experience the outside world, which is at night. Do they even try to do that? No. no. He's also up there because, for him, the above world is our actual world. Mm. In other words, they're needed to, if they wanted to, if they thought this through, if there was an attempt to create some kind of layered texture to this character or to the, the way that the events in the, in the story play out, his upper world is our just world. Right. And going up to the roof and looking at the stars is this other world. That's, there's a way to have, to, to have played this entire sequence, to have this character portrayed in a way that has him longing for a possible different life, which is something that could be seen as a motivating factor in some of the things that he does. But that's not what they do. It's It's... it's and it, once again, it's another one of those things where it's only after the fact, on like a second viewing of this movie, where you're going, why is this scene here? Why is he up there? Why is this character doing this? Because we don't get, and this is a really frustrating thing, this film feels like the people making it think that we're really learning something about this character, and we never, ever are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, it does make me wonder if there's aspects of it that um, were lost in the cutting. Again, if certain things became obscured, it's hard to say. You can only theorize yeah. as far as that goes. Um, the scene as it stands is just un- undoubtedly undone because the, the effects don't work. Um, and that's all that's all you can pay attention that's to. That's all is, it is. My I mean, God, how, sh- how shitty that's is this? That's essentially yeah. it because it, it, it's not like the Stendhal Syndrome where, yeah, some people might chortle with the CGI and say, oh, look how crappy that is. But to me it works because, again, it, it feels like a surrealist kind of a concept. And, and to me, I, I can go with it on that level. I don't feel like that's what's meant to be happening in that shot and in a couple of other shots. There are some good effects in the film. There's some very good uh, prosthetic work, for example, some good gore stuff. Um, Agreed. Agreed. But in terms of the CGI, 
again, for a movie that was expensive, it cost $10 million to make. It was the biggest budget he'd had up until that time, uh, and, and indeed the highest budget he ever had, because uh, after this, the budget started to shrink substantially. Um, it, it does not look cheap in other respects. The, the settings are really beautiful. The photography is beautiful. Um, there's all kinds of wonderful little detail and texturing that's in there that really does create a world. But the CGI cheapens it, and uh, I, I've, every time I watch the film, I think, I just wish, you know, they were already cutting a lot of other stuff out, just get rid of this scene, because the movie would have worked without it. It's, 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 a, it's a mistake. I mean, it's, 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 and it's, it's, it's the worst kind of mistake in a filmmaker, which is an unforced error. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, you know, if you, it, I, I, I will give a filmmaker a lot if they're trying something and an effect doesn't work as well as you would hope that it works because you know you gave it a shot we've got you know this piece has to be in there and it's not as effective as it needs to be mm-hmm. and in this film i give it I, i'll give you a perfect example in this movie the the cgi effect of the character falling onto the stalagmite mm-hmm. and being impaled by it the cgi aspect of that sucks I never minded that one as much, funnily enough. But the pros- but the but the practical when, yeah. we, when we see when we see the actor and the pros- and, and him impaled on that's phenomenal. Yeah. But the CGI aspect of it, when it happens, it's terrible. I know, but I know. at the same time, I don't fault the film for that yeah. piece of bad CGI because hey, they're trying really hard and the other the other aspect of that effect works like a charm. Yeah. It so does. I never really minded that uh, that particular CGI effect. I mean, I don't know. Maybe maybe it just didn't it just didn't jump it out at me as badly. Um, but I think possibly too because, as you say, it's being married to something that does work. So when you have when you have something that's necessary to set up a gag, so to speak, you know, you yeah. you can kind of accept it. So yeah, I don't. I, the, like I said, uh, Sergio Stivaletti, of course, is Argento's big um, special effects guy. He still is to this day. Um, his work with prosthetics and some of the things that he pulled off in films like Phenomena and Opera, you know, is really superb. Um, CGI just not in his bag of tricks, unfortunately, and uh, it certainly hurts this film. Um, but <laughs> I'd say the CG, even the worst CGI in this film, is preferable to the uh, the CGI that we got later in his version of Dracula, <laughs> which uh, <laughs> is the absolute bottom of the Argento barrel for me. Oh God, yes. Oh. Man, uh, that's let's not let's not discuss. We don't that. need to go there. It's too depressing. Let's yeah. Let me <laughs> let's uh, let's let's stay on track here. Which is, I will say, yeah. The the physical the physical effects. I, I I like I say. I give this movie a lot of credit for the physical effects. Even some of the physical. Even okay. I'll give you a specific example of a physical effect that I think works very well, but is it just inherently batshit stupid? Which is the uh, the several people on the uh the the you know being impaled by the uh the rat trap oh yeah it's a ridiculous idea but it looks perfectly wonderful yeah when they get in close yeah it does and it's and and it's one of those things where if i'm if i'm the producer on this there's a part of me that's going to look at him and go do we need to spend this money is this (laughs) visual necessary is it really necessary is this whole scene necessary yeah yeah is is it what what are we getting from this other than just this bizarre image that 
really doesn't get us anywhere. <laughs> but the the uh, and, and, you know, but at the same time, I would have also asked the question: Is it do we really need to be spending a lot of time focused in on? You know the 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 hand prosthetic of the actor, the rat catcher actor, when you know oh. he he loses all that skin and we can see the bone. That's but very effective, though. It's oh extraordinary. Oh yes, it is. As a practical effect, it's extraordinary. Yeah. But at the same time, are we supposed? The 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 reason for something like that might be to give us sympathy for this guy, but no. that's not the way no. the scene plays. <laughs> no. That's not the, the way the I movie the plays. Overall, I think the overall name of the game here is grotesque. That's yeah. how I would describe yeah. it as grotesque. I, I don't think that he's going for a conventional... I don't think he's particularly interested, and, and this is something... It either works for you or it doesn't, but I don't think he can necessarily be faulted for this. I just think it's something that he just decided to go with. He's not necessarily really super interested in making anybody or anything particularly sympathetic in this piece. The the characters are uh, all, great. Yeah, that's true. I'll agree, I agree with you there. Flawed in one way or another. The Phantom has his good parts to him. Um, he has moments where he seems seems quite sympathetic. Um, there are moments when he is quite psychotic. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> it's not. I don't think it's a problem in the writing. I just think it's you know illustrating the complexity of the character and saying you know take it or leave it. Here it is. Um, the same is true of the supporting players as well. I mean, the whole Argento's never been known as a political filmmaker, although he is very left of center without a doubt. And his films very often do have a kind of sly political commentary in them, usually focusing in on the upper classes who are essentially corrupt, um, you know, twisted, uh, greedy in some way or another. Very, very true in this film, from the it's portrayals very true that we in see this on film screen, yeah. Because we get to the character played by Aldo Masasso, who's a familiar character actor. You will remember him from The Living Dead at Manchester Morgue when he tells Arthur Kennedy, I'm mad about apples. Uh, he's his sidekick. <laughs> In Living Dead in Manchester Morgue, and he's in a bunch of other things. He plays a uh, very upper crust uh, kind of hanger on at the opera. He's kind of, I guess he's a member of the board. I can't remember for sure what he is, but he's a pedophile. And uh, he's quite a distasteful character. And, and uh, the most heroic action that the Phantom performs uh, in the film is, is uh, killing him when he's trying to molest a, a little girl. Um, I guess it could be seen as a completely gratuitous non sequitur, but I think it's very much a yep. part of the overall kind of, and I would I would say it's not. I think it does work. I think it does have a purpose, which again is kind of illustrating the corruption and the uh, the the ugliness and nastiness of polite society. You know, for all everything that glitters on the surface and looks really beautiful underneath, there's this kind of really nasty undercurrent, which I think is again very consistent through a lot of his films. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll grant you that it does that. The, the question becomes, what is its connection to the Phantom? The, the the character as as given to us in this movie is, first of all, is very different. Of, well, let's let's state a few things up front. He's not disfigured. Uh, he's he's not uh, someone who's been wronged in the in the past. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not this is not a character that we that we can. You know, in in the novel and in the twenty five film, he is someone who was born disfi- disfigured, and therefore, you know, the, his his entire life has been difficult for that very reason. Mm-hmm. In the forty three film, he's a he's a he's a a man who, although I would tease out that he clearly has 
real anger issues, yes, and a and a hair hair trigger violent streak, but he, you know, he's wrong. He feels that he has been wronged, and the mm-hmm. the his descent into madness and the sewers uh, are are precipitated by by that by him mm-hmm. being quote unquote wronged, and yeah. then of course you get to the sixty two version, the Hammer film, and you know you. <laughs> You have a full-blown... The first two films don't really have a villain. Right. The 62 version, boy, does it have a villain. I, <laughs> Michael Goff is one of the sli- slimiest pieces of garbage who have ever you know, slug him, slung himself across the screen, dragging Very a trail good, of goo dear. behind him. He's awful. <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, we get to... Th- if, we, if we just jump to this film, what we're looking at here is a guy who... I we it's it's hard to understand why he's doing anything that he's doing because he doesn't have an axe to grind. He's not well, I suppose being raised by rats might might throw you off a little bit. Well, now here's the thing. <laughs> the film itself is to be serious. The film itself is positing that he is because he was he was raised by rats and whatever this telepathic ability he has is he has kind of absorbed Many rat-like thought processes, ideas, ways of looking at the world around him. Okay, perfectly good, perfectly fine. It explains uh, the reasoning behind some of the more more grotesque uh, bits of violence in the movie. uh, Because he's doing things in a way that a rat would do them. Animalistic. Yeah. Did you know that originally the idea was he was supposed to look like a rat? Uh, No, I was unaware of this. He was originally supposed to look like a rat. That that, that leads us into, um, I mean, we can talk about the casting of Julian Sands, certainly, I mean, which I think is one of the more problematic aspects of the film. But he originally had tried to get um, John Malkovich um, I, yeah, and I Anthony Hopkins, which is extraordinary. Uh, <laughs> it would have been a very different film, especially with, with Anthony Hopkins. Yes, it would. He was a much older man. But the original idea was that having been raised by the rats, it's kind of like you know the, the rat version of Tarzan, I guess, he had taken on rat-like characteristics, and Sergio Stivaletti was designing prosthetics to that effect, um, and ultimately that idea was dropped, I believe, at the insistence of Julian Sands. Um, so that is something that, you know, I think that was one of the things that really pissed off the most people was the fact he's not disfigured. Because, you know, if he's, if he's not disfigured, then what's the point? Well, the point is he's psychologically scarred. Okay, that's maybe a little too cerebral, or maybe that's not persuasively worked through, depending on how you look at it. But this is where it's interesting to see how, if, you, if you're if you familiar with the director's work, and you're, you know, kind of following his work as it's coming, it plays a certain way versus how it'll play for the general public who doesn't know. So, to me, it plays very much like a continuation of the character that Thomas Kretschmann plays in the Stendhal Syndrome, where he's this very handsome, uh, very charming, obviously very affluent guy who, for reasons we don't know, is a a horrible sociopathic villain, uh, rapist, murderer, etc. This is a man who, you know, people misunderstand what rape is all about. It's not about sex, it's about power, it's about control. But, you know, this is a guy who would have no trouble getting any woman he wanted. But he's out there doing all these horrible things because he's psychologically twisted, you know. So, yes. again, it goes yeah. back to that idea of, 
you know, things that look good on the surface, but they have an ugly, ugly reality at the center. And so on that level, for me, I accepted the, the lack of physical scarring and everything because I thought, well, I mean, it makes sense. It's kind of carrying over something he'd done in the previous film. But I can also see where that might be a problem for people who don't, you know, think along those lines and may just wonder, well, what's what's this guy's problem? Um, the only thing that I think, you know, he's assuming that people are going to pick up on is the fact that, you know, he's had kind of a, <laughs> he's had a strange childhood and uh, perhaps doesn't have the best idea how to interact with people and you know but obviously there's some sort of um psychological problem in him you know you, you talk about the um claude rain's character having a hair trigger temper well this guy does too and when things don't go his way he can become very violent <laughs> so um it's admittedly a bizarre concept but it's uh it's one of those things i don't know that it would have worked better if they would have kept the idea of the phantom being sort of grotesque looking. Um, but I don't well, know. I mean, they Maybe could have people... at least, I mean, if they'd done that, they, they could have at least, you know, had the whole masking aspect of the, of the yeah. story. They could have kept that to that, that as well. And it could have, right. uh, you know, there are lots of interesting things that can be done with that. If you're talking about, someone who hides himself from the world. But, you know, like I say, that that gets tossed out when, you know, we've got this handsome guy and everyone in the every, everyone in the theater is going, so what's what? Why is he? What is the problem what, here? What, yeah, <laughs> go, go out. Do your, honestly, your biggest problem, in, you know, in, in Paris in that day and age is catching syphilis. I mean, let's go. Yeah, really, there you go. Yeah, I mean, it looks like Fabio. <laughs> yeah, easily. I mean, it's just one of those things where you're going. Well, I mean, uh, am, am I wrong in thinking that there's a there, there, we see him at one point with his shirt off, and you just look at him and you go, okay, first of all, dude, <laughs> he's ripped. You, yeah, and there's and it's like, yeah, this is around the same period of time he was making, you know, films like Warlock, and you're going, yeah, he was yeah. in good physical shape, and so there's nothing here presenting presenting. As 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 deformed or in any way, shape, or form, anything that's physically unpleasant. So, no. okay, here's the thing: I'm I'm willing to give uh, a new version of something. You're you're reinterpreting. You're coming up for, with a different angle. That's fine. So, what are you doing with the fact that this phantom is an extraordinarily handsome man? Okay, then he has to be crippled in another way. And of course that that built that's built completely into the character. We have this whole, you know, abandoned at birth, Moses thing, raised by rats. You know, obviously I I'm going to assume that he just shits wherever like a rat. I, who the hell knows? Let's not let's not get too close to too many aspects of what it's like <laughs> to live like a rat. But yeah. I mean, but there is a part of me that wants to know in the 43 version I wanted to know how in the hell Claude Rains got a piano down in the sewers and kept it tuned. <laughs> but in this film what I want to know is not how he got all that opulent goth crap down there to make his lair. What I want to know is why he doesn't smell like shit. Maybe he does. You know, they're European. They have different standards. <laughs> okay, fine. Fair point. And we're talking the was the 1880s. So, yeah, yeah, just smelling yeah, like shit probably very, wasn't very a deal breaker. Yeah, people bathe very infrequently in those days. Yeah. I mean, I guess presumably at least he's got all that uh, sewer water to bathe in. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, he, he does appear to get his freak on every now and again with rats, too. So, you know, that's yeah, um, there's a, something else. I, I, jo I jokingly said uh, when I was watching the film, uh, that, that moment when she spies him 
lay, yep. laying on the divan, the, the divan with uh, all the rats around him, and uh, you know, yep. like almost, you know, almost kissing a rat. Well, basically, you know, kind of doing to a rat. Mm-hmm. It's like I said, well, she's she's discovered lover boy's rat fetish. She is out of there. Yep. <laughs> it's just, it's you, you gotta you gotta draw a line somewhere. And I, I think you know, <laughs> tongue kissing a rat. You know, it's time to leave. Yeah, it's not normal, is it? Uh, <laughs> I suppose it depends. I'm not here to kink shame people. I mean, if oh, that's no, your thing, but it you does. It does point to rate. underlying problems that are going to surface at some point in time. Yeah, so. yeah. Now, um, my my problem with the casting of Julian Sands is, um, and I talk about this in the book I wrote about Argento. Uh, might as well work in a free plug while I'm at it. Would that um, be murder by design? It, by God, it would. And uh, <laughs> I, um, my problem with him is he physically he looks fine, but if you watch the movie in Italian, he comes across so much better because they dubbed him with this kind of deep, booming voice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Julian Sands has this very sort of wispy, weak voice, which I think. It's one of those things, if you're, it's like when you're playing Dracula, you know, certain characters you need to have a voice. And uh, that was one of the reasons Christopher Lee was such a great Dracula. He had that fantastic voice. William Marshall was Mama Waldi, had that fantastic booming voice. Yeah. Um, you know, Claude Rains, of course, one of the great voices of all time. Herbert Lom had a great voice, Maximilian Schell. And then you get Julian Sands, who just sounds sort of very weak and wispy, and that's my big problem with him in the film. And I think I that I, I wonder if I wonder if part of my feelings, you know, like I say, I'm not I, I'm not going to say I I'm, I've come over to liking this movie, but I I don't I no longer hate it, and I think part yeah. of that this time around may be that I did watch it in Italian with subs this time. Yes, and so. Not being distracted by that voice—that may be part of it, but I'll be honest. If so, it was an unconscious, uh, it was an unconscious thing because I I just defaulted to the Italian. So, yeah. Well, you know, Argento's films, with the exception of two films, he's only ever shot two films entirely in Italian. That's La Cinque Giornate from 1973 and his most recent film, uh, Dark Glasses. Those two films were shot in Italian. Everything else has been shot in English uh, for the simple reason that they, you know, they're always going for international export, and the English-speaking market is very large. So sooner than have issues like you have with, um, you know, Spanish films, as you know, very often shot in Spanish, where they're trying to sort of fit English dialogue into it. It's very tricky. Yeah. Um, they would shoot in English, and uh, going back as far as Suspiria. Um, he started using on-set sound recording. There's a, there's a surprisingly large amount of actual live dialogue in Suspiria, for example. Um, but, you know, a, a number of the films made use of a fair amount of production dialogue. That's certainly the case here. Um, a lot of the voices on the English track, I think, are actually the actual actors' voices. Um, but, yeah. For me, uh, the, the the case of Julian Sands, you know, you find yourself thinking, God, I kind of wish he would have been dubbed by somebody else because he's <laughs> just not, he doesn't sell that aspect to me. So I, I find it to be one of those things where somehow the voice just doesn't fit that presence in a, in a weird sort of way. Well, the when I when I think about the 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 things that work in the movie. I, 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 I admit, uh, if, if you're talking about a percentage thing here, my feeling on this used to be that there's like 25% of the film that I like and 75% of the film that I don't like. Mm-hmm. This second viewing, or not, it's not even a second viewing, it's probably more like a third viewing or fourth viewing, 
But this first viewing in probably 20 years had me slide up the scale to about 50-50. Mm-hmm. And when I start thinking about the things that I think work in the movie, when I when I look at it in, you know, 2022, what I see that works is uh, some aspects of it that I didn't hate in the past, but some aspects of it that I thought were kind of uh, not out of place, but, uh, and I won't even say unseemly, but bad fits for the the way the story was being, well, bad, bad fits for the story, and then also at times for the way the story is being told. And a perfect example of that is uh, what I would refer to as gratuitous nudity scene. Uh, that would be the bathhouse scene. And there are a couple of reasons that I, that it's a bit of a jolt. One, almost everybody in the scene is naked, and it's, it's this big group of of people in a in a public bathhouse. Uh, some of which, some of the people are you know clearly having sex. Some of them are just there to lounge. We have what I refer to as the the poet fanboy slap fight, which ends up in the pool, uh-huh. uh, which yes. by the way is ridiculous. Uh, but I gotta say. That is a that's an example for me of a ridiculous thing within this ridiculous scene that I actually could believe and was glad was there because these guys are drunk and they're having what appears to me to be one of the most beautiful examples of the movie fanboy slap fight <laughs> that that yes. that I see yes. every day on things like Facebook and Twitter where I'm going oh, yeah. ah. See how ridiculous he's presenting these characters. He's presenting them as as as, as jokes, as as idiots, yeah. as lunatics. And I'm going, yeah. yep, yep. They always have existed, and that is kind of the point of this scene. Although, it exactly. is it's one of the few little asides that I think the movie has in it that I am both amused by, appreciate, and doesn't completely take me out of it. Uh, but the the thing is the. And, and I don't know if you have any inside information on this. Was there a prerequisite that we have a scene where we have so much nudity that it's impossible to do anything other than go, okay, that's a lot of naked people. I mean, that's just like a lot. Of, well, we're talking like 30 naked people. What is going on here? It feels to me, it's kind of like uh, Argento's Ken Russell scene. Um, it, <laughs> it is, it is very grotesque. Um, uh, again, that word comes up, grotesque. It's uh, Fellini-esque, I think, in a way, you know, as well. Uh, that that kind of influence comes through in some of the exaggerated imagery that we have here. Um, what we're seeing in this film in a curious way, again, having established that he's coming off of a very dark, humorless and despairing movie, he's transitioning over to this very sort of deliberately campy, tongue-in-cheek uh, kind of uh, send-up in many respects. Um, we're starting to see an increase in what could be called both gratuitous nudity and gratuitous gore. Up until that time, Argento's films, of course, have been famous for having elaborate scenes of violence and so forth. But they tended to be done in a way that was more sort of stylized and it tended to be, you know, for lack of a better word, it was kind of beautiful. Here he's getting into something that's much more like what Lucio Fulci liked to do, which was getting, getting in there and getting sort of gross-out scenes. Um, which is off-putting for some people. It doesn't bother me, but it can be off-putting for some people. But the increase in nudity and uh, sex scenes and sexuality 
become something of a constant throughout much of his films from that moment on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't entirely know why that is. It is entirely possible this was him trying to cultivate a, a, a fan base. Um, he had mm-hmm. lost his grip on the fan base in the late 80s after opera being his last big hit in the Italian box office. Um, maybe he's trying to include more exploitable elements, hoping that people will like them. I don't know for sure. Um, I've never minded that scene. I actually really, I always appreciated the audacity of it. And I also sincerely appreciated the fact that he didn't just have sort of supermodel type people in this scene, but he yeah. has people of all different shapes and sizes. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is I appreciated I think, that. kind of admirable. Yeah, I, I, you don't see that much, and it's not done in a way that's meant to be kind of like, oh, look at look at that lard ass over there. It's not. Oh no no done no. Like yeah, this this is not a filmmaker uh, setting up a scene with a bunch of different types of nude people in it to sneer or to look down at these people. No. He's just presenting them, and it's just there. Yeah, it's just there, and uh, the, the 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 question I would ask, and this is where it kind of falls down a bit, is why does this scene need to be here? And in other words, and, and, and I'm sorry, not, you know, not, not, uh, I should be very clear. In other words, why does this scene need to take place here? And the thing is, right. this scene actually kind of passes that test for me because by this point in the movie, the reason, one, it's just nice to be outside into, in, into a different set, yes. into something, into something different. For It's also like a, a cold blast of water in the face with all of the nudity. It's such a, it's such a jarring visual difference with, everything presented within it and it does you know it does play a part because we do see a shift in uh, well it's it's our chance to to shift our view of the uh, other part of the quote unquote love triangle that this movie is Raul. rather weakly presenting yeah yeah Raul this is his opportunity for us to kind of get a little bit more about him and to you know it's he is the uh, he's the nice guy in the relationship. Yeah. He is yeah. kind of the uh, the stable guy. Um, tellingly, he's given a limp, um, so there's some indication there of some sort of physical flaw, some physical imperfection. Otherwise, kind of a handsome young man, very striking. Look, looks a little bit like Prince, actually. Yeah, I was about, I was about um, to say he's a very good-looking man, but you're right. He does clearly have some kind of uh, either injury or yeah. birth defect. That I mean, it doesn't keep him from you know doing what he wants to do but it is obvious that that is presented in a way to make sure that we're aware of it we're aware of it but also we're seeing in the scene he's smoking opium yeah um which it was a common enough thing it doesn't necessarily necessarily denote a drug addiction although of course he's also bringing in references like to baudelaire and so forth baudelaire was well known for having had an opium addiction um so it's all kind of you know, it's just sort of texturing stuff that's there, which I, I, I appreciate that aspect of it. It's something if you pick up on it, it enriches it a little bit. If you don't, it's no big deal. Um, but also kind of denotes the fact that, okay, he may be the nice guy, but he's got problems of his own. But we're seeing here quite clearly, you know, very explicitly, he's obsessed with her, which again gives over to one of these overheated kind of fantasy sequences where he pictures her with the, the, the wine spilling over her chest, etc., which is very sort of over, deliberately overheated, sexualized imagery. Yeah. Well, the, 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 once again, it's, I have to, I have to lay it at the director's feet. He's not good at getting across 
There's really only one scene where he's good at getting across the idea that there is a telepathic connection between him and yeah. between the Phantom and Christine. And that is one where you cannot avoid it because she's answering questions that she's hearing in her head. And she's answering yes. them out loud because it's the only way she knows how to do it. Yes. And that and so that the telepathic aspect of it, that is the point in the movie where you almost have to look back and go, Oh, so did he just? He, he clearly just failed to communicate that there's a that there's some kind of telepathic connection between mm-hmm. these two characters, and that's why that is that why that opening scene between the two of them was so batshit stupid. And so, it, it, it's 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 that thing. It's it's that thing where you're. It's 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 a failure of of a directorial choice, which we already talked about. How you know all it would have taken was a close up of Julian Sands' eyes, and then he, he could he could. He could go as so far as to have that kind of thing going on in other parts of the film, and yet he does not. And uh, the the bizarre sequence where uh, we've already mentioned the rat catcher's you know hideous hideous uh, 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 I can't call it an accident with his hand when we're introduced mm-hmm. to the character. Well, it's very clear that he does not want to do what he does to his own hand, and he is no, he's being forced. He's being forced. Yeah. But the 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 Ways in which you visually get a get this across, it's it's it, once again not being done here, and it's almost as if there, there's a part of me that wonders if Argento, surely Argento's enough of a, enough of a, a cinephile to know. Well, you have to, you know, there are dozens of different ways to communicate this visually. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, you can you, you, the, the 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 slow zoom in on certain on on, on a character's face is enough. I mean. Uh, Hitchcock and Brian De Palma will show you that you can really yeah. get that kind of thing across. It doesn't. It's just, it, there are all kinds of different ways to do this, and even just an insert shot of the Phantom's eyes while this is happening would tell you, oh, okay, okay, he's being forced to it do this. Have, it, it would have made it more explicit. There's no question about that. I, I do agree that it should have been stressed more with regards to her. I yeah. think that's something that could have been clearer. I don't agree with the rat catcher scene because I always understood that. I mean, to me, it was yeah, like, well, there's yeah. a reason. There's a reason he's doing this. I mean, okay, well, what's the reason? Well, it's called Phantom of the Opera. Okay, <laughs> I can make that jump and understand that. Okay, the Phantom is on some level. He he definitely could have underlined it, and I don't think it would have hurt to underline it. But I do think it. I mean, there's there's also, if I remember correctly, it's been a little while since I watched it, but during that sequence, there's kind of a rush of air. Or something like that on the soundtrack, which suggests some kind of a presence, um, something that's going on that that maybe is a little ambiguous. But the fact that this guy just all of a sudden is clearly fighting, you know, he's fighting himself. He doesn't want to put his hand into that trap. Yeah, and, um, and put that, that put that down. To, put that down to that actor doing a pretty good job getting that across. Yeah, no, he's so, good. Yeah. He, he he did. I mean, it's a very broad performance, and it's uh, very. Very, very over the top. He's a Hungarian actor who played it. Actually, the movie is a, it's a Hungarian co-production. It was shot at the uh, Budapest Opera House because they weren't able to get permission to shoot in Paris. I wonder why. Um, but uh, it, it's, you know, there are a number of Hungarian actors in the film, and he's one of them. And uh, no no points for subtlety in his performance, but I think it, it <laughs> I think it kind of works because he's just such a grotesque comedy figure. I think it's yeah, still kind of yeah. I, I, I don't think that character needs subtlety. That character needs no. that character needs a reason to 
he, he needs a reason to do what he does. He just needs a motivation. And I, I you know, he, the, the, the film certainly gives him that. The story gives him plenty yeah. of motivation for his actions, and that's that's fine. Although I think carrying him through to the final sequence of the film is probably, I mean, it's it's definitely an odd choice. But I mean, I I I, I do wonder if it's it's a it's a question of you know the director going, Oh, I really, I really am enjoying this actor. Let's keep him around. <laughs> you do wonder, you do wonder sometimes things like that have been known to happen. Yeah. Um, where actors, sometimes directors overindulge actors. I mean, I love James Whale. Uh, don't get me wrong, but I always felt like he kind of overindulged, you know, O'Connor in, um, especially Bride of Frankenstein where there's, there's two or three screaming scenes too many for my taste. As yes. much as I love the film, it's a, fantastic film not knocking it oh, I just, but i could have done with a little less uno o'connor <laughs> well, so. I, I just recently caught a movie um gosh what was it uh, beth and i were watching it recently after oh it's called uh, thunder in the night it's a yeah. 1935 uh murder mystery film and uh, that I, I we just ran across on uh, on youtube one night and went oh well that's that's this evening and uh, Uno O'Connor's in it, and I said, <laughs> and I said, oh, Uno O'Connor. Uh, I said, well, luckily James Well isn't directing this, so there's nobody, st- there's, <laughs> there's nobody standing behind her, goosing her in the ass, making her do stupid <laughs> shit. So, yeah, well, I mean, she's great uh, for Billy Wilder and Witness for the Prosecution, for example, and she doesn't have any freakout scenes. In <laughs> yes. That. So it's, but you do wonder about that. I mean, again, going back to the fact that Gerard Brock uh, co-wrote this script, I think is very interesting because when I heard about this film. I was very intrigued for any number of different reasons. A, it was an Argento film. B, it was him doing a gothic horror film. That certainly interested me. But he's working with the guy who's co-written some of Roman Polanski's best films. This is going to be fantastic. And then I saw the film and I liked it. I I liked it from the very first time I saw it. And I saw a very poor quality version of it, actually. Um, But I remember thinking, that script really has a lot of problems. (laughs) Yes, yes it does. It's a funny thing because, you know, uh, Gerard Brock is actually, um, or was, a agoraphobic um, and had not left his apartment uh, in in Paris for many years. And uh, Argento had spent the better part of 1977, or 1997, shuttling back and forth to Paris um, to work with him on the script. And I do sometimes wonder if maybe something got lost in translation. <laughs> well, I, I, with, with that particular screenwriter, I look at his list of credits and I, I can only be impressed because the things in his, the things in his uh, career that I, you know, that I'm familiar with, he had a, he has the screenplay credit for a movie that seems to be just completely forgotten these days, The Bear. The Bear, yeah. Which yeah. is that Jean-Jacques Anou, um almost... <laughs> maybe the reason it's forgotten is it's almost a silent movie. <laughs> it's, Pretty much. It's Pretty a, much. Yeah, and, and it, but I think that it's just... It's it's an exceptional piece of work. I saw it theatrically mm-hmm. back in 88 and was just blown away by it. You know, this yeah. is the man who... You know, he adapted The Name of the Rose. He did Man in the Sp- yep. of, of the Spring as Jean La Florette. Uh, it, it's... It, he, he, you know, I even give him full credit for the batshit madness that is Pirates, but Pirates, yeah. Didn't he have a hand in uh, Quest for Fire? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and you know, you, you look, you look at his at his at his list of credits, and you realize, okay, this is you know, th- this is this is a really kind of thoughtful, intelligent scriptwriter. Yeah. So when you come to this, and you realize that he has a hand in this, it's like, okay. When Argento is left alone, 
you can get something that is just visually entrancing mm-hmm. and incredibly entertaining, like Inferno. But at the same sure. time, you can get something that makes zero sense and does not bear any scrutiny, like Inferno. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Inferno is not is not a great story for our times. Uh, nor was Suspiria if it comes to that. But no. it's the visual. It's it's right. the uh, it's it's the atmosphere and so forth. Yeah, and that's. That's that's his strength. Well, but that um, that is that is my opinion is that that when you see that it was co-written by Argento, who, uh, you know, often you know Argento and Common Sense, as far as a screenplay is concerned, are not in the same country, and no. then you have this this scriptwriter who, quite honestly, is very capable of constructing mm-hmm. really intelligent, nuanced, layered characterizations and storylines, and I think, aha. I, I was unaware that possibly 45 minutes of this got gutted. So if you're Dario Argento and you're having to cut 45 minutes out of your passion play, out of this film that's going to be, quote-unquote, sure. your comeback, this is what the public wants to see from you, do you leave in the things that the, the highfalutin writer <laughs> put in, or do you leave yeah. your shit, you know? Yeah, it does make you wonder. I mean, again, I'd love to read the... Uh uh, the uncut script, and I, you know, if the material that was cut from the film was ever, you know, saved, uh, I'd, I'd love to see it. Um, I mean, it could be that it's it was a tremendous blessing that it was cut down. You know, maybe this. I mean, it's hard to believe that the movie could have sustained two and a half hours, but it probably could have sustained two hours. Maybe, maybe an additional maybe. fifteen minutes yeah. would have clarified some of these issues. I, I would be curious. I would be curious to know. I really would. But this still goes down. At least for me, as a, an interesting failure, not a failure on the like I say, I, this is a fifty-fifty movie now for me. It was not before; <laughs> it was definitely not yeah. before. But this is a film where I can I can see more clearly both the the flaws and the successes. the The flaws are still there. Some of the things that I considered flaws in the past. I'm a little kinder toward now. You know, so, yeah. And some of this, let's be blunt, this is something that I talk about occasionally on the podcast here and with other people, is the simple, the thing that I, you know, is just, it's kind of the, 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 the film fan's Doppler effect, which is when something is brand new, there's a, there's a different feeling that you have for it. And then once time goes by, looking back at something... It's not just that you're kinder toward it, it's that your attitude toward it has changed because you've lived with it for a while. It's kind of sat within the, your, your, your feelings of what is, um, what is good or bad cinema for a little bit longer. I used to joke that, uh, I don't feel this is true, but I think that a lot of people would feel that, well, yes, it's just that, you know, 10 years later, films have gotten so much shittier that something that you hated 10 years ago suddenly isn't quite so bad. And it's like, no, that's that's not true. No, that's I think that's a funny way to look at it, but that's not how I would put it. What, it. what it is is I think that the longer you live with a piece of art, and I, you know, I'm not trying to be some kind of critique, uh, but I am trying to say that the longer you live with something, the more it kind of becomes a part of what you're looking at yeah. with the things surrounding it being in uh, being in kind of uh, uh, relief. You can kind of see how what how it fits oh. into what was being done at the time clearer than you can at the, can at the time because you're just steeped in it. It's one of the time is the judge. Yeah, it, time is time is the ultimate judge for anything. And um, 
I, I always bristle whenever I, you know, end up talking about Argento's later films, and I've had people tell me, well, you know, you're just, you're just, you, you're being too kind, or you're, you're just cutting him a break because, and no, that's absolutely not true at all. I, I get very offended when people say that because. It's not a question of loving everything that he's made. I mean, if you look at the stuff that he did after Phantom, yeah, um, there's some good stuff there. But there, there were, for my money anyway, there were three really dismal films in a row, which were Mother of Tears, Giallo, and Dracula. I thought they were terrible films, all three of them. See, here's here's um, here's where we differentiate. Um, I actually enjoy Mother of Tears because it is. It is over the top and has every reason to be. I actually really enjoy Mother yeah. Tears. I'm with you on Giallo and Dracula. I think they're I think yeah. they're terrible. But my point is that you know, regardless, uh, the the fact that I'm willing to say that uh, kind of deflates the idea. Of, well, you're just you're you should never say you like a movie because so and so directed it. You should oh, yeah. you know if if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it's okay. There are very few directors who are prolific directors down through the years who have not made bad films. I would say, in my opinion, Polanski has never made a bad film. Uh, that's not a view that everybody uh, agrees with, but I personally, I don't think he's ever made a bad film. He's made he's think, made films that I can't see myself returning to because I find them uncomfortable. Uh, well, Knife in the Water and Cul de Sac. I, I th- you know, the, for me, they're oh, for me, I, for me, they're one time watches. I think they're very, very, very good. But I mean, that's beside the point. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I all of his films. I mean, they're not all of the same. Pirates you mentioned, I think, is probably his worst film. But <laughs> I don't think it's a bad. I don't think it's a bad film. I think it's I think entertaining it's as hell. I think it's entertaining. I think it's got some really good things in it, and it's not a bad film. I don't think Scorsese has ever made a bad film. There are films of his that I don't like as much, but I can't look at, at something like The Color of Money and say that's a bad movie. Oh, it's, God, it's very no, well I, made I think it's a hell of a movie, yeah. It's very well made. It's just not, not really for me. Um, but, you know, it's not the same thing as talking about like a director like a Sergio Leone or somebody like that who only made you know, a handful of movies, a Kubrick, something like that. Um, Argento, being a prolific filmmaker, has gone through kind of ups and downs in his career and his... His tastes and his sensibilities have evolved as they should um, down through the years. And the places he's elected to go hasn't always been where people have wanted him to go. Uh, Phantom, I think, is the ultimate example of that. Um, it's You mentioned Mother of Tears, that you like Mother of Tears. There's no doubt it's over the top. There's yeah. no question about that. And I do applaud him for following his impulse and making it the way he wanted to make it. Uh, it would have been easy for him to have played it a lot safer and done something a lot more like the first two films and had a hit on his hands and it probably would have worked. Um, so I can appreciate that. I don't like the banality of it. I find the film visually ugly. I don't find it interesting. I think for once he has a violent sequence in that film that to me really becomes really catastrophically bad taste um, where it's very distasteful and, and unpleasant in a way that I don't think Argento's films tend to be. Just out of curiosity, um, um... What did you? How did you feel about his two Masters of Horror episodes? Um, I've always liked Peltz. As a matter of fact, I think Peltz is the best thing he's made in the 21st century. Oh, I okay. really, really like Peltz. I did like Jennifer much at the time, but it has grown on me. Um, it does feel a little too beholden to sort of transposing the comic frames onto the screen, so it's not quite as lush as I would like it to be. Um, but as a sort of exploration of 
kinky sexuality and again this this contrast of the ugly face and the fantastic body kind of a thing uh and and exploring sort of male uh neuroses and things like that i think it's an interesting piece of work Mm -hmm. um but uh yeah i mean ultimately i i i I appreciate the fact that he did mother of tears the way he did it because it was the way he wanted to make it i just find it incredibly sort of banal compared to the other films i think it lacks the magic of the other films well i mean Um, mean, this this is a conversation for another time but it's almost uh yeah how could it not you know it's it was never going to look and feel like those first two films and that's that's part of it but the thing with me is that yeah, he lost me with Phantom. I mean, you know, it's it's 24, yeah, almost 25 years after the fact, and I'm reevaluating Phantom to not despise it. <laughs> um, but he got me back on his side with Sleepless just two years, mm-hmm. I mean, well, no, three years later, I would say. Yeah, where I later. really liked Sleepless, and I've I have talked to people who once once they jumped off the train either with Stendhal or Phantom. They, they, you know, everything after that is shit, and there's nothing that you can tell them otherwise. And I'm going, right. I don't know, man. Sleepless feels like he's 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 back on the giallo train and is really trying some interesting things there, and I really think it's effective, and the score is awesome. So, yeah, the score is fantastic. Max von Sydow is fantastic. It's a movie I've had a complicated relationship with. I liked it a lot, then I didn't care for it. Now I've come around to it. I, I do have problems with it, but it was it was clearly, you know. If Phantom was the artsy, weird experiment that didn't go over well, this is him saying, okay, I need to make something people are going to like, so I need to make something in the in the tradition of the old school, and that's what he did. Well, it felt um, like him pairing things back to those first three films. Kind of, yeah. kind of. It goes back to that slightly, and, uh, you know, it, it, has, it has a lot of good things, and it has some not-so-good things in it, too, but... I mean, I can appreciate it now. I've always liked the card player, and I, I know people don't like that film, but I like it. Yeah, I'm, I am not a fan, although I am, I am willing to revisit it. So you may, you may like it more. It's hard to say, but you know, both Argento and John Carpenter. It's very funny. Both of them, the the the, the general consensus seems to be they both lost it in 1988. It was a magical year somehow because John Carpenter after. They Live made nothing but shit, and after Opera, Dario Geno made nothing but shit. I don't and agree I with either. I completely disagree, yeah. I completely disagree. I think John Carpenter's output is actually far more consistent than people give it credit for. There are a couple of bad ones, but overall, I think he's made a lot of really terrific movies. Well, see, here's the thing, and I will, and I, and I, and I say this to people. if it, my, my argument would be that he made one of the greatest horror movies of the 70s, one of the greatest horror movies of the 80s, and I will fight you, he made one of the greatest horror movies of the 90s, and it's called In the Mouth of Madness. And, oh, yeah. And, and everything in between there, there's more greatness there. And even his weakest film, and for me that would probably be Ghosts of Mars, mm. I still can get some joy out of. Ghost of Mars has some good things in it. Village of the Damned has some good things in it. I don't like either film. I don't think either of them are good film. But, you know, something like Escape from L.A., which people dump on, I like that movie. I've always liked it. I I think it's a lot of fun. And it's it's as light as the first one is dark. It's it's the funhouse mirror version of the first film. Um, Maybe it's a little too close in terms of story beats to the first movie. But, you know, still, it's a fun movie. But see, Um, that that closeness to the... That's the the most valid... 
critique of Escape from L.A. that I that I have ever heard from people, which is he's just aping the structure of the first film. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, I can give you that that is that you can yeah. see that as a problem because we all know that movie so well. But at the same time, that kind of seems to be part of the point. <laughs> kind of, yeah. I mean, it is. You do kind of get the impression he and Kurt Russell and Deborah Hill were kind of getting a little nostalgic and maybe, you know, got a little too attached to that. But it's okay because the movie is very, very wickedly funny. And I think if you understand that um, and you appreciate it that way and approach it that way, it's a lot of fun. So I I think it's unfair the way his his later work was dismissed. I remember going in a very, very wicked snowstorm to see In the Mouth of Madness. Nearly died going home, <laughs> and uh, I didn't regret it because I thought this is a fantastic movie, and I so badly wanted to see it again, and it was gone from theaters within a couple weeks. Yeah, um, it tanked. It's a terrible thing. So the same thing with Dario Argento. I mean, he has this this terrific run of movies, which even the weakest of his films from the seventies and eighties, you know, people will generally agree it's still pretty good. Um, then after Opera, it just seemed like everybody was just ready to just dismiss him, and I. You know, we talked about Two Evil Eyes, we talked about Stendhal and Trauma and all that. I don't get it. They're fine pieces of work. And Family Opera, I at least can understand why people don't like it. Yeah. Although I I do think that... That 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 one's the obvious jumping off point, I would think. But people were... I still never understood the the problems with with Trauma and Stendhal. But yeah. No. Yeah. And I think, think especially now, that Phantom has been put out on blu-ray in a really beautiful transfer it's as as good a time as anybody has ever had to be able to go back and maybe look at it with a fresh set of eyes and and see what they think you may still think it's lousy i don't know but i i think if i think if you can at least get over the hurdle of it being unintentionally funny and understand that the movie is at the very least is is meant to be funny um that might help um but then the stuff after like i said sleepless card player you know, some good stuff there. And the most recent one, I don't know if you've seen Dark Glasses or not. No, I don't even know how to get... I, I don't even know how to see it yet. Well, I'll tell you how to see it, my friend. You can order the Italian Blu-ray. It does not list English subtitles, but it has them. Ooh, are they are they decent subtitles? Or are they I'm told they're, there's, not a lot of, there's not a lot of dialogue in the film. Um, it's, it's actually... The whole second half of the film is very action oriented so there's not really a ton of dialogue but i am told i haven't seen the blu-ray yet i saw it through somewhat dubious methods <laughs> there was a <laughs> a download of it that was available online so i watched it i uh, have much. no idea what you're talking about i've never done I, i've never done such never, a thing in, never in my life have i done this before but i was so desperate but the <laughs> blu-ray apparently does have english subtitles i should be having it soon and uh, uh i think now this is how i wrote it up when i sort of wrote up my review of it on my Facebook page. Um, If you're one of those people who thinks he hasn't done anything good since opera, this is not going to win you over. If, on the other hand, you've liked some of the more recent films, I think it's the best thing he's done since the Stendhal Syndrome. Interesting, interesting. A major return after after Dracula. Well, well... I, it was it was bizarre to me. I you know we've been hearing about him uh, making this particular movie, uh, either dark dark glasses or black glasses, mm-hmm. whatever they're calling it. The it, we've been hearing about uh, for about two plus years that he's making this, and there's a yeah. and there's a bit of excitement. But I have to admit, I was utterly shocked to realize that it has been a full decade since his last film, and his last film was Dracula. And uh, there's almost no way this can't be better than Dracula. 
<laughs> Seriously, there just there yeah. just isn't. No, Dracula, Dracula's atrocious. And, Although, and, and, I'm, and, and I will say this: if this turns out to be his final cinematic effort, I'm glad that it's not Dracula that gets that dubious distinction. Yeah, I'm a Facebook friend of mine, Michael McKenzie, actually said something very similar today. He said, "Well, if nothing else, it's no longer yeah. his last movie." Uh, I don't know if he's going to make any more films or not. I'm I'm done guessing because my book on him came out in I believe 2020. Uh, at this point, time has stood still for me, so I can't remember. But the point is, at the time they were talking about making it, and I thought he's 80. His movies have been bombing. Dracula was a disaster. He's never going to get this movie made. So I was content to finish the book and say this is it. And lo and behold, uh, through the COVID pandemic, he was able to make this little film on a low budget, on a 30-day schedule, uh, as compared to the 16 weeks that he had for Phantom. Um, and uh, with a young crew, and I think that was helpful too, a young, enthusiastic, energetic crew helped him make this film. And crucially too, I think shooting it in Italian, the first time he's done that since 1973, shooting a film in Italian, was all around a good choice and uh it's a slim story there's not a lot to it and the mystery aspect is kind of negligible but the characters i think the the central characters the three central characters are very engaging and uh i think it's really well shot and has a fantastic score well uh, i have to say i'm looking forward to seeing it i'm not sure exactly when i'll get around to it but uh i am glad that my rewatch of this and my very public uh struggle with it <laughs> coaxed us into having this conversation and i want to i want to thank you for coming on and and doing this because uh the uh the i have to admit that the reason i i started talking about it online as i was watching it was simply because i had a suspicion about 30 minutes into the movie that i was going to have a turnaround in how i felt about the movie and i didn't know if i was going to end up with a complete turnaround, I, I, I have had 180s on movies. I really have. Sure. Uh, over, over time, I've, I've, I have changed my mind completely about certain films as I've lived so you know, into, the ripe old, into my ripe old 50s here. But at the same time, that didn't happen with this movie, but I did feel much more kindly toward it, and that really did surprise me. Uh, and so I'm very happy that you were willing to come on and talk about it because you are an ardent defender of this. Uh, I did keep myself from uh, listening to your commentary track on the Blu-ray because I didn't I didn't want to walk I didn't want to like come into this conversation, you know, with a with a 15 bullet pointed page in front of me where I was ready to dispute every damn thing you said because that would be stupid. Well, now you don't ever have to listen to it because you've listened to me talking about it now. <laughs> exactly. However, they. They were lucky enough to get uh, lucky in quotation marks to get me and Nathaniel Thompson because we were two of the few people in the world who actually genuinely liked that film. <laughs> and uh, we, we had a hell of a good time talking about it. I mean, it has its problems. I'm not arguing it's a masterpiece. His new movie's not a masterpiece either, folks. It's not one of his great movies. It's, it's a good, solid movie. Um, but that's, me, but that's is, good to know. I mean, that, that's good enough. That's exactly that's 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 kind of the way I you know when the when I was talking earlier about Mother of Tears, it's like I didn't expect Suspiria people, no. and and people who and, and that's always felt to me like one of the things that people had a had a had a desire for. It's like he's he finally making the the third the third film, and it's like oh, oh and it's like guys, there's 
this is 30 plus years later it's not going to be Suspiria you need to well be, it's like yeah. it's like Coppola coming into the Godfather 3 I yeah. mean people people tear that movie to pieces I actually think it's pretty good I mean I think I think it's a pretty good film and I, I do yeah. think that it you know if we'd only you know, with, with one casting change it could have been phenomenal uh, but you know that that it is what it is I mean yeah, ultimately yeah. Uh, th- that's the way things worked out and I don't think the movie is nearly the turkey people make it out to, especially the new cut I don't know if you saw the uh, no I still need to I still need to cut. see that new cut well see that's just it I didn't hate the film no it was it, don't get me wrong it's a massive step down from the first two yeah, films sure. but it, I never thought it was a bad film by any stretch and so I've never understood the vitriol directed at it but no no I think it, watch the Coda cut it, it fixes some of the structural problems it makes it a better film um, but yeah, I mean, any film deserves to be assessed on the level it's aiming for. Not every movie yeah. is aiming for something really lofty. Phantom aims pretty high in some respects. It, it's kind of flirting around with certain things that are fairly cerebral, and you know, it's a big, ambitious film. It's an expensive film. Again, the money is on the screen. Uh, um, it's not one of those movies when you hear it costs a lot of money and you say, "What? Wh- where? Why?" <laughs> because, <laughs> It does look lush, if nothing else. Even if you don't like the film, I think that should be, you know, evident. Um, oh, but, I, I, got, I got to tell you one thing though. Something that I meant yeah. to bring up before our discussion ends here. I, I wanted, I wanted to not get away from it. The very, very much in this in this version of Phantom of the Opera, do very much we have uh, an aspect of the story that feels like they felt like they had to cram it in, but because of the way they wanted to end the movie. They, they, it totally destroys the the, the chandelier. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like okay, we have to have the chandelier falling, and, we, and so we, and of course this is you know this is going to be a big set piece where we kill a bunch of dummies. I mean you know characters, <laughs> and, you know we, we we kill a bunch of people, but then we but structurally we need this big opera scene to end the movie with, and it's like wow they cleaned that place up quick. Yeah, they did. That's very true. We, wow, we, I mean, we, you know, we, we replaced all the long. chairs, we carted out the corpses, <laughs> and we're ready to do this thing. And it's like, I, you know, it's like, if you really, it's like, no, that doesn't, that doesn't work. But, nah, well, again, I think they thought, you know what, we, we're not going to have an unmasking. We better make sure we at least get the chandelier in. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they cram it in. The scene itself is not bad, though. I, no, no, no. The, the scene is actually really yeah. effective, but it just, it, 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 the movie trips over itself. To have it in there by then undermining it completely because there's absolutely no evidence that this horrendous thing happened, you know. Well, apart from ten minutes apart from later, a cutaway you know? to a couple people with bandages and, and things like that. Yeah. You know, there there is that, but yeah, I mean, yeah, like I said, it's it's got its problems. It's not a great film. I would never argue it's a great film, but uh, I think it's better than it's given credit for. I think it's it's an interesting film. Um, you know, compare it the film we do not wish to name, his version of Dracula. I mean, <laughs> he was never a guy who really wanted to make gothic horror films. He was always more into that sort of giallo scene. That was what he really wanted to do. Yeah, um, it's, it's just it, when he's telling contemporary stories, really, is when he feels at home and is when he seems yeah. like he's really kind of cooking on every cooking, uh, you know, he's cooking a full meal, essentially. Right. Yeah, he was going to do in the 70s there was there was an attempt to do a version of Frankenstein set during the Nazi era with Timothy Dalton and they were trying remember, to get hammered. I remember rumors of that and I still yeah. think that that could have been a very interesting movie, but Well, I, well it could have been very but you never know. Look at the look at the gothic films he made and yeah. it makes you wonder. I don't know that it's really his milieu, but I think this one is substantially better 
than what he did with Dracula. I think Phantom was something that ultimately he really wanted to do, whereas Dracula was just kind of, well, let's see, Twilight's big, um, 3D <laughs> is big all of a sudden, Dario Argento, let's do a 3D Dracula. And you have him doing, you know, of course, as directors do when they're promoting their work. I, I never knew a way into Bram Stoker's classic until 3D. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's wait like, a minute. Come bullshit. On. <laughs> well, praying mantis and uh you know this is what it's gonna uh his version of dracula is um is i believe is unintentionally funny i don't think that movie is meant to be as funny no, as it is no. but i do think this one is meant to be funny so take that for what it's worth well i mean what, what what's amusing to me is that uh as bad as i think the rooftop sky sequence is yeah. in phantom of the opera it's it's beat all to hell by the ridiculous train station CGI sequence. Oh Jesus! Yeah, talk about scenes that should have been left. But you know, I talk, I kid you not. Um, if the person who told me this is listening and they take offense, I'm sorry, but I, I can't help it. It sticks in my mind. I was talking about this film one time, Dracula, and you know, bemoaning it, and I had somebody tell me that's my favorite Argento movie, and I was of really? course. I was incredulous, and I, I, I thought he was joking. And he, he's, I'm, I'm, I'm not. I don't joke about movies. I'm serious. Oh, so I, of course, I, I would then be. A, I would be sure he was pulling your leg. Yeah, I would have been sure too. So I was intrigued by then, and I said, "Well, okay. Well, why?" Crickets. He never would tell me. Well, that <laughs> means you can't articulate it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess, but it was like I understand. I mean, the worst films I've ever seen. I know everybody, somebody out there likes movies I hate. Um, True. It's just the nature of art. I mean, people, you know, humor we mentioned, eroticism be another, you know, what's sexy to one person is not sexy to another. What's good as far as a film goes differs. But I was absolutely just gobsmacked when somebody told me with a straight face that that Dracula was their favorite Argento movie. But, you know, there you go. I guess no film is entirely despised. You're just reminding me of uh, something. This uh, this Top Gun, this you know Top Gun oh, sequel yeah. has just come out, and and people are saying, quite honestly, people whose whose opinions I would respect that it that it's that it's actually very good, an extraordinary oh, piece man. of filmmaking, and I and uh, someone someone has said more than a few people actually that it improves on the original in almost every way, and I have said out loud to some of these people, how could it not? Yeah, you know. Um uh, John Carpenter was actually offered Top Gun. I don't know if you know that or not. No, no, my God. Down, uh, which is, I'm glad he did. Um, I didn't care about Top Gun then when I was nine years old. I guess it came out in 86, so I would have been nine. I didn't care about it then. I don't care about it now. It, the new one may be fantastic. I'll never I see, it. I, see it. I, I, yeah, I, I honestly don't think I will ever see it. I mean, I'm not big on Top I mean, we're getting really far afield here, aren't oh, we? I, I, I know. Uh, Tom Cruise is somebody I, that Somebody rubs me the wrong way. I just I, I have do like no problem with Tom. I have no problem with Tom Cruise. I think that as a person, he's probably a nutcase. He's but a creep. <sighs> it's the Scientology stuff for me. Yeah, yeah. That's that's no, the, I think he's that's, a creep. That's that's the that's thing. not my that's not my issue. My issue, I just don't find him to be a very interesting actor in general. But when I like him, I like him a lot. I like him in Eyes Wide Shut. I like him in Collateral. Um, I even liked him in Interview with the Vampire. I thought he was good in that. Well, see, that's just um, it. I think he's been phenomenal, phenomenal in things like Edge of Tomorrow and Oblivion. It's mm-hmm. it's when he's straight when he's actively hunting for mm-hmm. really good scripts 
I mean, th that's the thing. With him, with him as your star, you can get the budget to do some of these things, and right. therefore he's got he's one of those people in Hollywood who has a better chance at getting some of these audacious ideas that sure. do need that budget, you know, to the screen with you know with that sense of that sense of of, of high quality intact because mm -hmm. he'll stand there, you know, he'll stand there and and say no 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 we're going to do this because right. that's why I decided to do this movie you know mm -hmm. and the producers of the film will shut the fuck up you know yeah yeah you're right no he I mean he is one of the very few I guess equivalents to an old time star that we still have I yeah. mean he's somebody who really genuinely can draw people uh, although I mean the last film of his I saw in a theater was The Mummy which was atrocious um, See, I, but, I, I can I can enjoy that film. I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's great, but I do enjoy it. But the thing is, he, he's 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 such he's such a weird person in Hollywood for me because he's had this incredibly successful run of films, the Mission Impossible films. Sure. And I think the first film is a shitty movie <laughs> with a great director. I think the second yeah. movie is a shitty movie with a great director. Yeah, and then I, once you get to the third and fourth movies, it's like suddenly, how does this happen with us? How does this happen from the third and fourth movies on? It's been like, holy shit, these are good movies. Yeah, and the directors aren't nearly as interesting. But, yeah, you know, go figure. But and I, yeah, I don't know how that happened, but it's I, I I can't think of another film series in cinematic history where I have felt, oh well, that 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 first one's a dud. Oh, that second one, boy, they made some bad choices <laughs> there. And suddenly, by the third one, you're like, "Oh, wait a minute, that one works." And yeah, from no, there it's on, like, it's like they're firing on all cylinders. How the hell does this happen? It's not like James Bond, which I think started off strong out the gate, then kind of lost its way and has been all over the place. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's 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 weird when that can happen. I mean, he, I mean, he he undoubtedly has, you know that star quality there's something about him i don't find particularly appealing personally we we, we are so far from this is this should this we should are. not have been part of the podcast folks this, <laughs> this, this was a mistake yes this was this was a mistake and i should have excised it but you're <laughs> listening to it and it's your fault so i just want to say as as a listener you're at fault i apologize uh, <laughs> but troy once again thank you very much uh i what, what have you got uh, what have you got on the slate coming out anytime soon that people should know about uh, Book-wise, I have a book on Umberto Lenzi called Make Them Die Slowly, The Kinetic Cinema of Umberto Lenzi, which is the first book uh, written in English on Lenzi. Cool. Um, it should hopefully be out in July. Um, Commentary-wise, mm, the, uh, the second volume of the Christopher Lee collection that they've been doing through uh, Severin. Oh, the Eurocult stuff, yeah. Yeah, the Eurocult of Christopher Lee. They, they're putting out another one um, soon, and I'm on a couple of tracks for that, and I've uh, been recording for a whole bunch of different things. Not really at liberty to talk about what they are just yet, but there's some <laughs> good stuff coming. I understand. Uh, I've got a few things, I've got a few irons in the fire that, well, no, let's, let's put this, there are things that I've done months ago and I'm, I'm going, when are the hell are they going to announce these things? I know, I know. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, once again, thank you for coming on to talk about this film and then to have this bizarre ramble off into Tom Cruiseville here at the <laughs> end. And uh, I guess we'll, uh, we will talk to you again later, man. Thank you so much. Thank you.
Welcome to Free For All, an episode-by-episode podcast about one of the most endlessly fascinating television shows ever made, The Prisoner. Each week we'll be taking an in-depth look at the 17 episodes of The Prisoner. I'm Chris Bainbridge, Senior Lecturer in Broadcast and Creative Media, and I'm also a Prisoner devotee. And I'm Kai Ross, a film writer, restaurateur, and Chris's mate, which is how I got this gig. (laughs) So if you want to find us on Facebook, you can find us by searching for Podcast Free For All. And if you want to look for us on Twitter, we are Free For All Pod. And feel free if you want to comment, join the group, send messages, all that stuff. Well, that's going to wrap up episode 151 of The Bloody Pit. Thank you for listening to the show. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what the next episode will be, or I would uh, I would let you know. But uh, if you have any feedback on this episode, or any previous episode, or indeed any future episodes that you already have some kind of precognitive information about, uh, go ahead and uh, email us at thebloodypit at gmail.com and we'll be thrilled to hear from you and uh, we'll be back very soon with another episode